Hey, one thing I want to mention before we get started here is we do preach here verse by verse through the Bible. Bob Dwayne is currently going through 1 Corinthians. I'm going through the book of Matthew. One of the advantages of doing so is that you end up hitting texts that you would never, if left to your own choice, probably ever deal with. And that's the topic of fasting here today. So today we're going to be dealing with fasting. But I want to remind you where we've been thus far. In Matthew chapter 6, we've seen Jesus admonish his followers to do their righteous deeds to be seen by God rather than men. Now today, the topic is the same, but it has to do with fasting. Fasting was indeed commanded of the Israelites under the Old Covenant for one day, the Day of Atonement. But the question we're going to be wrestling with today is what about the New Covenant Christian? Are we to fast? And so we're going to be wrestling with the question to fast or not to fast. That is the question. And we're going to be answering all sorts of questions. Should we fast? If we do fast, how should we fast? And if we fast, what does fasting accomplish? That's what we're going to be looking at here today. Now, I want to begin by talking about how fasting was understood in the Old Testament. And I want to begin with the two terms that were used in Hebrew for fasting. And you'll see why later these terms are important. The first term on the left there, psalm, is the technical term for a fast, abstaining from food and doing it voluntarily. But next to it, the Hebrew term anah, is a term that's related to it. It means literally to be emaciated, but it had to do with humbling oneself in a fast. In fact, that's the term that's used in the only fast that is commanded of the Israelites in the Old Testament. In fact, it's the only fast commanded of believers in all of the Scripture. And it was on one day, the Day of Atonement, in Leviticus 16, 29 through 31. There, the people of God were to humble themselves to remind themselves of their need for God's provision and his atoning work that he alone provides. Now, what's interesting is after that, there were no other required fasts that God had given the Israelites. However, there were man-made fasts made by the Israelites when they wanted to commemorate the destruction of Jerusalem and its temple in 586 B.C. Now, remember, that happened on the fifth month of the year, the month of Ab for them. And so they would do a fast, but it was man-made. God never commanded it. In fact, notice I have Zechariah 7, verses 3 through 5 listed. That's because there, the people of Israel, 70 years after they had returned to the land, they asked the question, should we continue to fast? And what's very interesting is the reply by God. God says, and I'm paraphrasing, that he was sick of their ill-conceived fast. Why? Because at the end of the day, God wanted the reality of a broken heart rather than the ritual of an empty stomach. What he was concerned with was whether or not they were broken for their sin, the the reason why they had been brought into Babylonian captivity in the first place. So let me say that again. What God was concerned with was not the ritual of an empty stomach, but rather the reality of a broken heart. That was God's concern. And so I think we can conclude from the man-made fasts of Israel that God never really was pleased by them because they were done in some sense in vain. Now, let's go to the New Testament. In the New Testament, we see that the Pharisees, they fasted twice a week on Mondays and Thursdays. We know that from Luke eighteen twelve, But it's never commanded of anyone else. In fact, the Pharisees used their fast 
And the fact that Jesus and his disciples did not fast as a bludgeoning tool against Jesus, claiming somehow Jesus was less pious than they were. The only two fasts that we ever see recorded of New Covenant Christians are there two of them in the book of Acts. Acts 13.2, with the appointment of Saul and Barnabas to bring about the gospel to the uttermost parts of the earth. And Acts 14.23, where you have the appointment of elders in all the church of Asia Minor. Other than that, you will not see another reference to another fast. In fact, in the entire New Testament, there is not one command for any believer ever to fast. And I think we can conclude from that, and this is going to be my thesis throughout the message, is that yes, you and I as believers in Jesus Christ are free to fast, but we are never commanded to fast. Do you have the freedom to do it? Yes, but you're not commanded to do it. It's an area of Christian liberty. Now, let's begin to see how Jesus explains how we must not fast. He always begins by saying how not to do something before he tells you here how to do it. Matthew 6, 16, Jesus says, whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly, I say to you, they have the reward in full. Now, dear ones, notice here in the box that phrase that you see on the screen, whenever you fast. There's two ways that we could take this phrase. First of all, it could imply Christ's expectation that his immediate audience, that would be the Jews in Galilee, that he expected them to continue to fast because that had become their religious habit. Remember, the Jews that he's speaking to in Galilee, they came from a Pharisaic background. They didn't go to temple so much. They did certainly on the holy days, but they were engaged in a Pharisaic synagogue style worship, or they would have had in their habit that of fasting. The second way that we could take it is perhaps this phrase, whenever you fast, applies to all Christians. And the implication there would be that you and I are implied that we're going to be the ones who fast during the new covenant period. Now, I believe in the former, that Jesus is affirming the custom of his original disciples, that it was their custom in Judaism to fast. And he doesn't tell them that they can't, but if they're going to do so, they're going to have to do it with the appropriate heart. The reason I say that is because, again, never will you see in the entire New Testament one command from an apostle or from the Lord that you and I must fast. Now, notice what Jesus says, though, to his original audience. He says, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do. Now, remember, dear ones, the hypocrite, let me pull up my pointer. I'll point to what I'm pointing at. The hypocrite. The hypocrite is the one with the mask on. Remember, they're the ones who appear to be on the outside, pious in the religious sense, but inwardly they're not pious at all. And so he doesn't want them to fast as they do, putting on a gloomy face. The term for gloomy there, the term is skuthropos. And the term literally has to do with a sullen face, one that looks very pathetic. Now, why would they do that? Well, remember the Israelites of that day, they lived in a very dry climate. They still do. And so think about back when you're a kid maybe and you're playing on a, many of you played Little League Baseball on a dirt lot, and maybe on a dry day you'd come home and you'd be really gritty and dirty. Well, think about if you lived in a culture that had that much dirt and dryness in it, 
If you didn't wash your face, that would, that's what the Israelites would do. They would wash their face with water and anoint their heads with oil. And if they didn't do so, they would look very pathetic very quickly, very dirty and very dry. Well, that's exactly what these men did. They neglected their appearance so that they would look pathetic so that others would know that they were fasting. And Jesus says, don't do that. Notice he says, for they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men. I think there we have a play on words. The term for neglect is the term afan ethosine. And I want you to notice the ending, the scene ending. There's a play off of the next term for notice, which is phanocene. So notice the alpha privative. This means literally to disappear. They made their appearance disappear so that they would appear before men. It's a play on words with the scene ending. They made their appearance neglected in order to be noticed by men. And the problem with that, of course, that shows us that they really don't have genuine faith, that they're doing their ritual, their act of fasting, not to be noticed by God, but rather merely to be noticed by men. And so that's what Jesus is upset with. Dear ones, no matter what our righteous deed is, if we're going to do it, we're to do it for a father who alone sees it, not before men. And so that is what's irking Jesus. Now, once again here, Jesus wants his disciples to show true humility before God, not a false piety before men. He says, but you, when you fast, anoint your head. This is how they should do it. Anoint your head and wash your face so that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but by your father who is in secret. And your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Now, again, dear ones, notice here, Jesus is referencing the typical hygiene associated with the Israelite. The normal Israelite on their daily hygiene repertoire would wash their face with water and they would anoint their head with oil. That's what he wants them to do. Just keep up their normal hygiene. Why? So that they don't look pathetic before men in order to be noticed. And so that's his concern. Notice he says that you will not be noticed by men. Keep up your normal hygiene. The term notice there again is that term that we saw in the previous verse. The term is fino. Don't be noticed by men, but by your father who is in secret. The term secret there is the term kruptos. So the idea then is if you want to be noticed by men, that is not an act of faith. Every time we do a good deed, it has to be done in faith. Why? As the writer of Hebrews says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. So if you're doing your righteous deed, in this case fasting, to be noticed by men, the implication is that you're living by sight rather than by faith. You can see men and you can feel and touch and see their reward. But by faith, trusting in the scriptures, the word of God, by faith you have to believe that there's actually a father in heaven who sees what you're doing and will one day reward you. And so if you fast to be noticed by God alone, it's an act of faith. You're living by faith rather than by sight. That's what Jesus is referring to. And again, he admonishes us all in verse 18 that that is the reward that we should be living for, the reward ultimately that comes from God and not man. Now, we've just seen Jesus once again then tell us that if we're going to do our righteous deeds, it's to be noticed by God, not men. But I think this begs the question, should we be fasting at all 
as new covenant Christians. Let me give you two facts that I think we have to wrestle with. Number one, there is not one command in the New Testament that you and I should fast. That's number one. But number two, we do know that some Christians in the book of Acts did fast. And so how do we reconcile that? Well, the first thing I think we have to do is wrestle with some of the biblical data. And one of the passages I think we have to wrestle with is a passage in Matthew 9, 14 through 15, where John the Baptist's disciples asked Jesus, why do you and your disciples not fast? This is very important for our understanding of whether or not fasting is for us today. And let me show you why. Notice here in verse 14, it says, Then the disciples of John came to him, that's to Jesus, asking, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, The attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Now, the first thing I want to point out here is notice the rhetorical question. Jesus says, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? What is the implied answer to that question? Of course they can't mourn, and therefore, of course, they can't fast. Now, who are the attendants of the bridegroom? Literally in Greek, it's the sons of the bridal chamber. Now, who would these men be? Well, in the culture of Israel... These would be the men who would attend the groom during the seven-day wedding feast of an Israelite wedding, and they would attend to all the needs for the groom. Now, we won't get into all the details, but of course, the attendance of the bridegroom, which is a good translation, is a reference to Jesus' disciples. They're the attendants. He's the bridegroom. He's the Messiah. And the idea is, as long as he is with them, they can't mourn, and therefore, fasting is inappropriate. But notice the contrast. He says, but the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away. Notice and read the term taken away. The verb there, apero, is a verb that at times can indicate being removed by violence. Not always, but in context, it can mean that. Now, why do I say that? Because I think here we have a direct allusion to Isaiah 53.8. Isaiah 53.8 in the Septuagint, it says this. It says, by oppression and judgment, he, that's the Messiah, was taken away. Certainly a reference to his crucifixion. And so here in Matthew 9.15, we have the first hint of the crucifixion of Christ. That by violence, he's going to be taken away. So notice then, after he's taken away in the crucifixion, then it's going to be appropriate to mourn and therefore fast. Does everyone see that in the underline? It says, and then they will fast. So here's the question we have to wrestle with. It all has to do with that underlying phrase. And then they, who is the they? Is the they the original disciples? Or is it all Christians? If it is the original disciples, the original 12, then we can understand that this mourning and fasting will probably be during the three days that Jesus is dead. But after his resurrection... Once again, the joy comes. But if Jesus is referring to all Christians, he's probably then referring to us living during the church age and that, yes, fasting should be normative for us while he's away preparing a place for us. So which is it? Well, I think it's a reference to the original disciples. 
Remember, they are, after all, referred to here in the question, why do your disciples not fast? They are the attendants, notice on the screen, of the bridegroom, right? And are they not alone the ones who were with Christ before he was crucified or taken away? So the initial context seems to support that it's the original disciples. What's more, when we look outside of just Matthew into the entirety of the New Testament, we see that the attitude of the new covenant believer is to be one that is enraptured with the joy of messianic salvation. That you and I as believers in Jesus Christ are not to be those who live a life of mourning constantly, but rather ones who have great joy because of the messianic salvation that we partake in through faith alone in Christ alone. Let me prove that to you. Turn your Bibles to John 16.22. John 16.22. Please turn your Bibles there. John 16.22. And as you're turning there, what we're going to see from John here is that joy is that which accompanies the disciples, even the original 12, after the resurrection. So yes, there's a mourning, there's a sadness while he's in the grave, but when he's raised from the dead, joy returns to them and it can never be taken away. John 16, 22, notice Jesus says, therefore you too have grief now, but I will see you again and your heart will rejoice. And notice he says, and no one will take your joy away from you. When Jesus is raised from the dead, the joy of the disciples in messianic salvation will never be removed from them again. Now, turn ahead one chapter to John 17, 13. This is Christ's high priestly prayer in which he intercedes on our behalf with the Father. John 17, 13. Notice Jesus prays here to the Father. He says, But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. Dear ones, messianic salvation leads to great joy. And is it appropriate if you have great joy to mourn? I think the idea in Matthew 9, 14 through 15 is no. What Matthew 9, 15 envisions is a short-lived mourning and fasting while Christ was in the grave. But the joy of salvation is to be with not only the 12 disciples, but with all believers throughout the entirety of the church age. That's the idea that we see that in, here in this text. And I think you combine that with the fact that nowhere in the New Testament do you have one command for believers to fast. And I think we have to conclude that, yes, fasting is something we may do, but it's never something that we must do. It has to be an area of Christian liberty. Now, as I say this, someone might point out and challenge me and say, well, Eric, there are other texts in the gospel where Jesus seems to point out that fasting is necessary, for example, for casting out demons. And I'm thinking of Mark 9:29 in the King James Version. Well, I want to set the context with you. In Mark chapter 9, do you remember Jesus has to address the issue with his disciples as to why they could not cast out a demon? The reason why is because they relied upon their own power rather than God's power. They thought they had the ability to do that. And this is why Jesus rebukes them in Mark 9.19. He links them to the unbelieving generation. The idea of unbelief characterizes all those that were around them. Jesus says, you're like that. And then in Mark 9.29, 
This is the New American Standard Bible. It says, and he said to them, this kind, he's talking about the kind of demon, cannot come out by anything but prayer. And so Jesus there is wanting them to rely on God's power, not their own. But I want you to notice the King James Version says, and he said unto them, this kind can come forth by nothing but by prayer and fasting. Aha, there's a difference. Now, which are we going to go with? Are we going to go with the New American Standard Bible or the King James Version? Well, I think the best looking at the textual criticism, the best answer to this is that we go with the New American Standard Bible. Let me give you a textual note from the Net Bible. By the way, a Net Bible is a great reference for all of you Christians out there, not just pastors or teachers. The Net Bible, by the way, does not mean it's the official Internet Bible. That's what I used to think. It stands for the New English Translation. But one of the people that was involved in its, its being comprised was a man named Dan Wallace. He is the head of the Center of the Study of New Testament Manuscripts. He is the man when it comes to textual criticism. And I want you to see the note here, what they say in the Net Bible. It's very good. It says that the most important witnesses, then he lists these different manuscripts, as well as a few others, lack chi, that would be the and, and nastia, which is fasting, when a good reason for the omission is difficult to find, argue strongly for the shorter reading. The shorter reading would be but prayer. The idea is it's much more likely for a later redactor to add to the Bible than to ever take something away. Combine that with the fact that in the early church, and I'm talking about after the apostolic period, fasting starts to become in vogue with the church, and so they're looking for a theological justification. I think some later redactor provided that. They add and fasting. By the way, Dan Wallace was here one time at this very location, and we asked him about this very text. Remember, he's the man. He's the one who knows the manuscripts by name. He looks at them. We asked him, what do you think? Is it but prayer or prayer and fasting? He said, look at my waistline. What do you think I believe? He was a pretty robust fella. He was what we would say husky, right? And uh, I, I, I appreciate that about him. So it's He thought for sure it was but prayer alone. Brothers and sisters, there is not one command in the New Testament where you and I are compelled by God that we must fast in order to be right with him. Again, I think this is an area of Christian liberty. So with that, let me come to some application points that I think are necessary here. Number one, while fasting was done and can be done to show humility before God and to focus one's mind on God, We must never forget that our favor with God is settled by Christ's finished work alone. You have the freedom as a new covenant believer to fast, but you don't have the freedom to make the claim to yourself or to others that you must fast in order to be more pleasing to God or to be more holy before him. That was finished when Jesus said the three most important words ever, it is finished. When he finished it on the cross, you had all the sufficiency you ever need to be before God in him. We have to remember that. Number two, for the new covenant Christian, what you do with food is up to you. You do food. You have the freedom. You want pork and you want to eat a lot of it? You go ahead. You have freedom. You don't want to eat any pork? Don't eat any pork. You want pizza? You don't want pizza? You want to fast? You don't want to fast? You do food. It's under Christian liberty. Jesus is the one who said, Come unto me, all you who are 
weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And this is part of having a light yoke that Christ gives us. So let's begin with number one, this first point here. And I want to show you here, I'm going to talk about the two main purposes in fasting in both the Old and the New Covenant. But I want to be very clear again that if someone approaches fasting as if somehow it's necessary to do in order to be made right with God or to be made more holy, you've departed from faith alone in Christ alone, all by God's grace alone. No, fasting is not necessary, but it's allowable. Now, the first purpose behind fasting that we see in the Scriptures, it had to do with humility, showing one's need for God. And this is certainly true of the Israelites on the Day of Atonement. On the Day of Atonement, they were to be humbled before God, recognizing their need for His atonement. Let's read Leviticus 16.29. Notice the Lord said, This shall be a permanent statue for you in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall humble your souls and not do any work, whether the native or the alien who sojourns among you. The first thing I want to point out in this text is the date. Notice the seventh month, the tenth day. What day is that? That's Yom Kippur. By the way, that was what was celebrated this week by the Israelites. They had their Yom Kippur. Now, on that day, it was the one day of the entire year that the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies. It was that one day where the high priest would take two goats to make atonement for the people of Israel. The first goat, remember, was referenced as the scapegoat. And on that scapegoat, the high priest would confess vicariously all the sins of the people of Israel upon that goat. And then it would be led out away from Jerusalem into the wilderness. And the image of that is something we called expiation. Expiation is man-centered atonement in which our sins are removed from us. Or as David said in the Psalms, as far away as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our sins from us. It's a removal of the sins of the people. That's expiation. But remember, there was another goat. And that goat was to be slain, and the blood was to be put on the mercy seat called the propitiation seat. Remember, that was where the high priest would go. He was the only one. And only once a year, he was the only one that would go into the Holy of Holies. And the idea is he would take the blood of that goat and he would pour it on the propitiation seat. And I think the imagery, remember, that's the covering on the Ark of the Covenant. And the imagery, I think, behind this is that the Shekinah glory of God, his dwelling presence, was residing above the cherubim. And as he would look down at the law within the Ark, his anger would be kindled. Why? Because the people were violating it day after day after day. But when the high priest would put the blood on the propitiation, the mercy seat, the idea is his wrath would be appeased. And so that's propitiation. It's God-centered. The atonement that God provides is man-centered in expiation. He removes our sins. But it's also God-centered in that he's appeased propitiation. And re remember, the blood of bulls and goats, according to Hebrews 10.4, could never provide atonement. They could never actually do what they were designed to do. Why? Because they were foreshadowing ultimately to point forward to the work of Jesus Christ. 
Jesus Christ is the only way that anyone can have atonement. The only way your sins can be removed and that you can have God appeased was the death of Christ once and for all. And it was predicted in the Old Testament in Isaiah 53. It was predicted in Zechariah some 500 years prior to the birth of Christ in Zechariah 3.9 when Zechariah says the Lord will one day bring in his branch. And he says in one day, in one day, not over and over and over and over, but in one day he would remove the iniquity of the land. Jesus Christ died once and for all to give us expiation, remove our sins, and to appease the wrath of God, propitiation. And all of this was designed from the day of atonement onward. That's why the fast. Because these people needed to humble themselves like we all do and say to the Lord, I need this. Now, I want you to see the idea then of a humbling. Remember that term is anah. We saw that earlier. It means literally to be emaciated. It means to be humbled before God without food. Now, I want you to see the relationship of being humbled because you might say to yourself in this text, where in the world is the idea of fasting? I see the idea of humbling, but I don't, I don't see a clear command to fast. Well, let me show you how the humbling, the anah, is related to fasting in the Hebrew mind. Turn your Bibles to Psalm 35, 13. I'll show you the connection between the two. Again, turn your Bibles to Psalm 35, 13. I want everyone to see this for yourself. Psalm 35, 13. Please turn your Bibles there. This is about David. David here is talking about how when his enemies were sick, he fasted and prayed. But when he was suffering, well, there wasn't so much prayer and fasting on his behalf. Psalm 35, 13. Notice David says, but as for me, when they, that's his enemies, when they were sick, my clothing was sackcloth. I humbled my soul. Notice the term humbled, the same term we have here, anah. I humbled my soul with fasting, psalm. And my prayer kept returning to my bosom. There's the connection. The idea of being humbled implied the fast for the Israelite. They were humbled by fasting. That's the idea. Again, the need for atonement needed to consume the Israelites because without that, they could never have eternal life just like us. All right, now, with that, the second reason why fasting was done, and they go hand in hand, these two purposes, was focus. That fasting would eliminate distractions in one's lives. I want you to think about how in the ancient Near East, how much time would have been spent in food preparation. You couldn't just go to McDonald's or go to the grocery store and get the rotisserie chicken and then get your spinach and just go home and within 10 minutes you've got yourself a meal. No, food preparation took copious amounts of time. And so the fast during the Day of Atonement freed up the entire people of Israel to focus their minds on what ultimately mattered, not their physical needs, but their spiritual needs. Now, we see this in the New Testament, I believe, this demand of focus through fasting with the prophets and teachers here in Acts 13. Now here in Acts 13, the context is about the Antioch church that was the first to send out missionaries. Why were they going to send the missionaries to the world? Because they were going to be the ones who began to fulfill what Christ had commanded in Acts 1.8, that you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And so here at Antioch, they're going to be about that. 
It says, Now there were at Antioch in the church that was there prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Manan, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. That would be Saul the Apostle Paul. Verse 2, it says, While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Now, the first thing I want to point out is who is at this church that's being singled out. Well, notice it's the prophets and the teachers. Now, some scholars have claimed within these five names that some of them were prophets and some of them were teachers, but more than likely, they were all prophets and teachers. Now, remember here, prophecy could just mean that they were teaching the Old Testament and they were giving implications and applications of Scripture. However, it could imply that they were also being given divine revelation. And I think we see the latter here. Why? Because the Holy Spirit speaks directly to them. Remember, the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, and they were there on the scene in the first century. Now, what were these men doing? Well, notice it says they were ministering. The same term, by the way, is used for our liturgy. It would, this idea of ministering would have to do with reading. It would have to do with the things concerning the service. But notice, added to the ministering to the Lord, they were also fasting. And again, I think the idea was that they were focusing on their need to fulfill what Christ had commanded in Acts 1.8. And notice to that, then, they're given the answer. The Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. Now, should you and I expect that if you and I would fast, that we're going to get direct revelation from God? That if we fast long enough, God will hear audible voices and he will speak directly to us. I would say no. Why? Because as it says in Ephesians 2.20, the church was built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus being the chief cornerstone. So Jesus is depicted as holding the foundation together of the apostles and prophets. And the rest of the church is then built on that foundation. Do we have multiple foundations in a building or do you only have one? You have one. So therefore, we have one group of apostles and prophets that are no longer with us. Now, the reason I'm pointing this out, dear ones, is that, again, I'm claiming that you and I are free to fast, but we're not commanded to fast. And if you and I would fast to say, well, I think I'm going to fast so that I can hear clearly from the Lord, you and I are on a fool's errand. Because at the end of the day, God has spoken to us, as it says in Jude 3, once and for all. You want to know what God has said? Then you read the scripture and you can eat. You don't fast. All right, now let me show you the other example. Turn your Bibles to Acts 14, verses 21 through 23. This is the only other example in all of Acts of their Christians being engaged in fasting. Turn your Bibles to Acts 14, verses 21 through 23. The setting here. Again, Acts 14, 21 through 23, you have Paul and Barnabas. They have just preached the gospel at the city of Derbe. And notice what it says in Acts 14, 21. It says, after they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Now notice verse 23, it says, When they had appointed elders for them 
in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Now again, who was appointing the elders for them in every church? It was Paul and Barnabas, the apostles. By the way, I think Barnabas's apostolic authority is directly connected to Paul. He is Paul's right-hand man. And so the idea is you have the fasting of the apostle who once again is now going to appoint someone who is going to be in the leadership, not just for some churches, but for every church in Asia Minor, for everyone. And isn't it interesting, here the apostle Paul is not appointing apostles and prophets. Why? Because that foundation is laid once and for all. Isn't it interesting? We're never to appoint apostles and prophets, but elders. That's why you have criteria for appointing elders in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1. That's why Paul says to Titus, appoint elders in every church. He doesn't say appoint apostles and prophets. Why? Because you don't have a continuing office of apostle and prophet. So again, here you have the apostle fasting. And I think the implication is he receives revelation as to who was to be appointed as the elders of the church. Did he meet every one of them? Did he give them all a thorough background check? No. I think this is something that he relied upon God for so that the church would be set up not for disaster spiritually, but for success. Dear ones, there is not one other fast recorded in all of the book of Acts. There is not one passage in the entire New Testament where you and I are commanded to fast. And so I think we have to conclude again that we are free to fast, but we're not commanded to fast. We can fast in order to focus on prayer in a time of need. But if we do fast, two caveats, we cannot do it in order to be noticed by men. It's to be before God alone. And when we do it, we don't do it in order that we would be made more holy because that was finished by the finished work of Christ on the cross alone. That's the caveats that we have to have in our minds. And so I think that we have to be convinced in our minds that our atonement, our righteousness, our favor with God all come from the finished work of God. Now, I want to show you, turn your Bibles, if you will, to 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. 1 Timothy 4, 1. As you're turning there, I want you to see that one of the issues that we have in Ephesus is the problem of false teachers claiming to Timothy, the pastor there, that Christians had to add, they had to get rid of certain foods, they had to eliminate foods in order to remain kosher and keep the Mosaic food laws. What we're going to find out is that this is actually a doctrine of demons. What I would say is that if anyone claims to you that you have to eat certain foods or not eat certain foods in order to be right with God, they're teaching a doctrine of demons. But in the same way, if someone says to you, you can't eat at all on a certain day, you know what category that would be in? I think that's a doctrine of demons. So listen to what Paul says. First Timothy, oops, I'm sorry, I had you turn to this one. First Timothy 4.1. Notice he says, but the Spirit explicitly says that in the latter times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. What are these doctrines of demons? Notice he goes on. He says, by means of hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron, men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods. Now let's stop there for a moment. 
Notice the first doctrine of demons comes from the doctrine of forbidding people to marry. I want you to think about what church is there out there that forbids its priests from marrying. Well, that's the Roman Catholic Church. It says to a whole lot of men, you cannot marry. What does the Apostle Paul call that doctrine? It's a doctrine of demons. It's not godly. It's not piety. It's a doctrine of demons. It's setting men up for disaster because of the sexual lust of their heart. Now, notice the second doctrine of demons, abstaining from foods. So again, this had to do originally, I think, with the Mosaic legislation, false teachers saying, you got to go back to Moses. You have to leave Christ. You got to go back to Moses and have those dietary food laws if you really want to be right with God. But if someone were to say, well, it's not just you have to eat that food and not that, but instead said to you, you can't eat any food at all, what can we conclude? It's a doctrine of demons. Why? Because notice he says, these are things that God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. The tenor of the entire New Testament is not one of mourning and fasting, but of messianic salvation and therefore great joy. Are we going to be the people who are always dour and fasting? Are we going to be the people filled with messianic salvation and great joy? Now, are there times in your life where as an individual, great sorrow has come to you? Yes, there are times that that will happen. And I would suggest to you that there may even be an appropriate time for you. Again, it's up to you. You may want to fast to focus on prayer. In fact, it may just happen naturally in your life where you say, I can't even focus on food. I have this great need. I'm going to focus on prayer. But what I'm saying to you is that the tenor of the New Testament is not mourning and fasting, but great joy. And if anyone is to teach anything other than that, that you have to fast, you can't eat that food, you can't get married, they're teaching you not piety, but a doctrine of demons. I want you to see that this lie was not just in Ephesus. It was everywhere. It was at Colossae. At Colossae, the Israelites had just left Babylonian captivity, and many of their bad ideas from the Persian captivity came with them. What they believed and what they taught is they were saying, yes, you Christians at Colossae, you may have begun with Jesus Christ for salvation, but this Jesus is not sufficient to protect you from the demonic realm. And so they started teaching them all these religious practices that they must do. And they, they, they taught them that they had to seek the help of angels to protect them from the demons. But all the while, it was a doctrine of demons. The demons are teaching men that what you need is not Jesus, but you need angels. And all the while, it was the doctrine of demons that originated from them. In fact, turn your Bibles to Colossians 2.20. Colossians 2.20, please turn your Bibles there. You'll see the same problem here. At Colossae, as there was in Ephesus. There's differences, but there's a big similarity. Christ isn't sufficient. That's the main thrust. So Paul has to argue, oh, yes, Christ is sufficient. Turn your Bibles, Colossians 2.20. Notice what he says. He says, if, and by the way, he implies that this is the case. If, as I believe has happened, is the implied idea, if you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world. Now, let's just stop there for just a moment. What are the elementary principles of the world? The term there, stoichion, would be a reference to the demonic realm. 
So what Paul is asking is that if you have died with, to the demons, and when did that happen? The moment you trusted in Jesus alone. You became dead to the demons. That's one of the images of baptism, that when you go under the water, it symbolizes the death to the old world. The old world dominated by the demonic realm. You're dead to that. Baptism doesn't do that. It symbolizes what happened the moment you trusted in Jesus. You're dead to the demons. So Paul's going to say, then why are you still submitting to their doctrine if you're dead to them? That's what he's saying. If you've died with Christ to the demons of the world, why is if you are living in the world, do you submit to their decrees? Such as, now what are their decrees? Do not handle, do not taste. Is that piety or is it demonic deception? It's demonic deception. Do not handle, do not taste. He says, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandments and the teachings of men. These are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom, notice in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. Notice, dear ones, that do not taste is not something that will make you more holy. But rather, he says, it is of no value against fleshly indulgence. If you think that not eating certain foods will enable you to overcome sin or not eating at all, you're on a fool's errand. What makes us more holy is believing the promises of God. If you and I will trust upon the Lord Jesus Christ and live for his promises, you and I, therefore, will not live for the sins of the flesh that so easily entangle us now. That's the idea of sanctification, not through different religious practices like do not taste, do not handle. That will never help. Dear ones, we as Christians are free to fast or not to fast. We are not free, however, in making a claim to ourselves or to others that fasting is necessary to be made more holy before God. That is a false teaching that has its root in the demonic realm. Now, let's go on to our final point, then it's related to our second point. I want everyone to know the complete liberty that you have in Jesus Christ with food. What kind of foods to eat, when you can eat foods, whether to eat foods, all of it is an area of Christian liberty. Now, why do we have that change from the old covenant where they had limitations on what food they could eat to the new covenant? Let me try to lay out what I think the issue was. Under the old covenant, God used three laws to separate Jew and Gentile. It was circumcision, Sabbath-keeping, and the food laws. Those three groups of laws made Israel so eccentric that the Gentiles and the Israelites could never commingle for any length of time. They did somewhat, but it wouldn't be something that would be permanent. Now, why might that be important? I believe it was to preserve the Messianic lineage. The Messiah is to come from Abraham, from Isaac, from Jacob, from Judah, and from David. But if you had a constant intermingling with just nothing but Gentiles all the time, that lineage perhaps could not be preserved. Now, to be fair, there are Gentiles in Jesus' lineage. Rahab is an example that comes to my mind. But the idea would be is if you had tons of mingling, you might lose that lineage. And so the idea then is once Christ is on the scene of history, physically, Christ come in the flesh, 
those laws are no longer necessary. And so that's why Paul, as Bob was talking about today, in Ephesians 2.15, Paul says, now we have one new man, Jew and Gentile, and those laws are done away with. Now we want there to be mingling between the people of God and the rest of the world so that the rest of the world may know who Christ is. And so this is why in the New Testament, Mark seven nineteen, Jesus declares how many foods clean? All foods clean. Jesus, let's hear that again. Jesus declares in Mark seven nineteen, all foods clean. And if you're going to submit to yourself to the Lordship of Christ, you have to know that, that all foods are clean. And so this is an area of Christian liberty. What kind of food we eat, when we eat, where we eat, if we eat. That's an area of Christian liberty. And I think that's implied here by Paul in Romans 14, 5 through 6, where he says, one person regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. So stop there. That's a reference probably to either Sabbath or fast or probably both. The different feasts, the different Sabbath days. Notice he says in blue, very carefully, he says, each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. In other words, it's an area of Christian liberty. Verse 6, he says, he who observes the day observes it for the Lord, and he who eats does so for the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. And he who eats not for the Lord, he does not eat and gives thanks to God. So in other words, whether you eat or you don't eat, you're to do it for the Lord. And each person must be convinced what? In their own mind. That's the liberty that you have in Jesus Christ. Do you want to fast? You go ahead. You don't want to fast? By the way, I'm not big on fasting. You've probably seen that at the, some of the supper tables we've been around. Then don't fast. Are you with me? It's an area of Christian liberty. That's the idea that's presented here in the scriptures. Now, the biggest issue that we all have before us is whether or not we belong to this new covenant and therefore Christ in which we have that liberty. How can we have such great liberty from a Messiah who says to us again, come unto me all you who are weary and heavy laden? Well, the reason we have such great liberty is he is the one who paid the debt for us. He's the one who didn't make his followers do the heavy lift. He did it for us. The good news of the gospel I'm going to share with you because I always tell people the good news of the gospel, I think it only makes sense in light of the bad news. And the bad news is that all of us were under the bondage of sin. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and we couldn't extricate ourselves from that. And the wages of this sin that we have, this rebellion against God, as it says in Romans 6.23, the wages of it is death. Separation, not just of body and soul, but one day a separation from God eternally in the lake of fire. I can't think of any worse news than that. Think about how bad a news that is. One day as a rebel against God, you're going to be thrown in a lake of fire, eternally separated from God. That's bad. But that's precisely what makes the good news of the gospel shine. The good news is not that you may have a better day here and there during your earthly life, but the good news is that you may have everlasting life and forgiveness of sins. How? Because God the Father sent forth his Son, the Son who existed as God and with God from all eternity. At a point in history, he humbled himself and became a man through the virgin birth. And he did so so that he would be truly God, truly man in one individual 
so that he could live the perfect life that we could not, so that by faith in him, his righteousness could be credited to our account. But Jesus didn't live just the perfect life. He also died a substitutionary death. Jesus, again, as we talked about earlier, was our expiation who removed our sins, and he is our propitiation who appeases the wrath of God through his one death once and for all on the cross. Jesus the just on behalf of us the unjust in order that we might be brought to God. The proof that Jesus accomplished these things was proven by the fact that on the third day after his death, he was bodily raised from the dead. Jesus is the only one who ever predicted his resurrection and then pulled it off. Jesus' resurrection proves all of his claims. When Jesus says that he is the way, the truth, and the life, that no one comes to the Father but by him, we can believe it. Why? He was raised from the dead. This Jesus also ascended into the heavens where he's seated at the right hand of God, fulfilling Psalm 110.1, from where he's coming again to bring a glorious kingdom for his people, but wrath and judgment upon his enemies. What must we do? Well, Jesus commands all of us to repent and to believe the gospel. Repentance has to do with a change of mind and a turning from serving idolatry, you know, idols, sin, self, the world, turning from that and turning to God in his terms, which is faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. Today, if you'll trust upon the Lord Jesus Christ, you will have the forgiveness of sins, the absolute assurance of everlasting life. And you will also have the freedom to fast or the freedom to never fast because you and I alone who trust in Christ are the ones who are given messianic joy in his salvation. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for the joy of messianic salvation and the fact that you paid our debt in full, that we need to add nothing in a religious service to you in order to be atoned for, but that you did it alone on the cross for us, that we may gratefully, with a joyous heart, by the power of your Spirit, obey you. Heavenly Father, we do pray that we would have clarity about fasting, that we would be those who are compelled not to do things in order to be noticed by men, our good deeds and our righteous acts, but rather to be pleasing to you. They would live for your reward that's eternal rather than the rewards of men. We pray that, Lord, that you would do that through us and for us. I pray also, if anyone here today, whether online or today, in person, heard your gospel, today would be their day where they would trust in Jesus Christ to have the forgiveness of sins in the liberty that attends the sons and daughters of the Most High. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.